how we get to a certain outcome that we want to get to, right? How we will fit the right means or the right methods and the right process in order to achieve the right outcomes. Now, sometimes it can be used negatively, like, you know, when you're in uni and you, you work that kind of dead-end, low-paying, you know, like just getting, scraping by kind of job just to be able to get by, right, in order to then get the desired job at the end of a uni degree, right? It's a means to an end, right? Or in in positive ways, like earlier this year, I don't know if you remember earlier this year, where the world leaders were all gathered together, the whole COP26 thing, and they were all talking together and working together about how they might achieve a carbon zero or carbon neutral, uh, you know, and so they're talking about all the different ways that we can go about this and a means to an end. And essentially, there's a bunch of methods and a bunch of things that we needed to be able to commit ourselves to, a bunch of significant changes for our lives in order to get to that particular end, the end goal of a carbon zero planet, right? It means we've got to commit to these means, right? So while we can speak about a means to an end as being, you know, about the actual steps that we take, it's often, though, used, isn't it? as a phrase by which we talk about not just the specific steps we take, but the way in which we take those steps. You know what I mean? Like, like we often talk about a means to an end, like where, where we talk about the way in which we get to a certain outcome. Did we do it honestly, or did we compromise our integrity? Right? Means to an end, right? Did, did, we, did we do it with care or with negligence? Sometimes awful or unethical things have been done in the pursuit of achieving a greater goal and then shrugged it off with a simple, ah, it was just a means to an end, right? Or what about those, you know, again, we see it all over the place. The other day I saw a, 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 um, a billboard, you know, Christmas ads are starting to show up all over the place. I saw a billboard that had, uh, had on display this uh, beautiful product, you know, <clears throat> um, expensive jewelry. And the, the message implied behind the big, the, 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 the subline on the, on the ad was, a way to show you love her, right? And it's like, okay, well, the, the conveying that your love for the recipient, your gift was the way in which you would show love, right? The means to an end. So speaking of means to an end is is the way in which we speak of getting somewhere, as in the literal steps we take to get that end. You know, we took step one, we took step two, we took step three, and then we reached the end. But it's also a way of speaking about getting somewhere in terms of the way in which we traveled, the attitudes, the postures, the dispositions of our hearts as we traveled as travelers along the way, whether we went the way of love or the way of humility, or the way of suffering, or the, even the way of Jesus. Now this, friends, is why I wanted to start talking about Advent today, as a prequel, because I want to do some preparation with us this morning to get ready for the season of Advent. And I want to talk about the means to the end, the way in which we will journey through Advent, because in a few weeks, we're going to get to this significant event at the end of the year, Christmas and New Year's, and it's amazing, right? And what a significant celebration that will be, so good. But let me ask you, how will you be getting to that end? As in, what way will you be taking? What way will you be going about the journey to the end of the year? 
good friend of mine, Dan. Uh, he leads a church up in Auckland, great church. And, and Dan is also dad to uh, a wee four-year-old named Jimmy. And uh, Dan was telling us uh, recently that, that actually uh, he started this habit, you know, they've, they've recently moved and when he gets home from work, he started this practice of like saying, hey, Jimmy, let's go down the beach. And there's this beach not far from where they live in Auckland and, and so they, they, they short drive, you know, five minute drive or something like that. And then they, and, then they uh, and Jimmy is so pumped. The minute he's like, hey, let's go down the beach, you know, while, while you know, dinner's being prepared and all this kind of stuff, Jimmy's pumped, you know. He's like rushing around the house, slapping on his togs, he's racing down, where's the towel, you, you can imagine it, right? Four-year-old just going ballistic, absolutely nuts. Like, let's get it. He's in the car before Dan's even started getting changed, you know, like that kind of a thing. Dan straps him in, they drive down, and then before he can even start to undo the seatbelts in the back seat, Dan says, Jimmy's like legs are flailing, like he's like ready to go. He just wants to be at the beach, in the water, you know, all go, all noise, right? And, uh, and Dan says, but the, the thing is, like you pull into the car park and then we got this water down through this bush track that's maybe almost a kilometer long. And, and Jimmy, like he's, as soon as he's out of his dad's arms, he's like off and running down this track, full tilt. All he can think about is getting to the beach and the water, right? That's all he's focused on. So he's like off, you know, going. Whereas Dan says it's become this beautiful moment, you know, the 10 minute walk or so of, you know, down to the beach for him to kind of just kind of take a few breaths and enjoy the scenery, beautiful nature around him, you know, and kind of like, he's like, he said, he said the other day he saw this like lizard like he's never seen before. And he's like, hey, Jimmy, Jimmy, come check this. Jimmy was long gone, you know, like couldn't even come back. Like, and, 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 and just enjoys like after being at work all day and in meetings and talking with people all day, it's this opportunity to just kind of take a breath, enjoy the surrounds. He knows the beach will still be there when he gets there. He knows the water's not going anywhere. Like he'll still get to enjoy all of that when he gets there. And I just think it paints a beautiful picture and the invitation that I want to issue to us, church. How will you be getting to Advent, getting to Christmas this year? Because as I've looked around, you know, looked around and watched how our world tends to get to Christmas, it seems to look, right, these next few weeks seem to look a lot like Jimmy, right? Full tilt, full noise, arms and legs flailing everywhere, it's go, 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 sprint to the finish line, let's get to Christmas, and then just collapse for like a month, Right? What if we did things differently? What if, as the people of God, we said, Advent, this season of preparation, this season of waiting and anticipating, is a way in which we're not formed by the norms of our culture, we're formed by the way of Jesus. What if we intentionally stepped back and said, actually, we know Christmas is coming and it's going to be great. We know the beach is always going to be there. We know it's going to be awesome when we get there. But the way in which we get there is going to be different this year. What if this year we intentionally slowed down instead of speeding up? What if we were actually more attentive to and present to not only the presence of God in these next few weeks leading up to the end of the year, but also the presence of people in these next few weeks. So there's the invitation. Let's do Advent together. Because we know the rest of our, the rest of our culture isn't going to embrace this invitation. 
So we're going to need each other to support one another on this intentional journey of doing things differently, going the countercultural road of intentionally slowing down and scaling back and the means to the end being a different one. I think we'll be different people when we arrive at Christmas. So our text today is found in Mark chapter 3. And the, and, and the title for the message, the title for this talk today uh, is, is, uh, is simply this, Jesus' vision of community. Jesus' vision of community. Because the invitation is not just for us to slow down, but for us to slow down together. Let's do Advent together. So Jesus gives a picture, and the first, I just want to lay, the, lay a foundation really, the first kind of key idea for understanding Jesus' vision of community, I think is found here in Mark chapter 3. Let's read in verse 31. Jesus says, uh, then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. This is when Jesus has got a, a, a crowd of people, he's been doing a bunch of things, a bunch of people standing around, he's been teaching and all this stuff. His mother and brothers came to see him, verse 31. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus and someone said, your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. And Jesus replied, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and he said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, if I was to ask you, what is community? What would be your answer? How would you answer that question? What is community? Because our way of defining community is often measured by a series of metrics around three common things, isn't it? We usually talk about people like us, people who do things like us, or live in a place near us, right? So they're either people like us, who do things like us, we share common interests, or, they, or we share a common space. They live in a place near us. Oftentimes, those are the metrics by which we would use to determine community. It might be our trusted crew of mates or those we share interests with, like even church, for example, you know, or those we share a neighborhood with. But let's take some time to think about the metric Jesus might use to measure community. How would Jesus define community? And here in today's text, we've, we've got Jesus giving us the first, the first, the, the starting point of his answer to that question, I think. See, to Christ, community is the making of a new family. The making of a new family. Jesus' picture of community is beyond his own bloodline and it's extended to a new family of his disciples themselves. You know, they're they're diverse people who are united in this relational kind of solidarity and they're committed to practicing knowing the Father and living the family way of the kingdom. Just like when you get married, right? You kind of, you start to learn a new way of relating, a new, a new pattern. We often, in premarital counseling, Jamie and I often talk about, it's like learning a new dance. You've, your family of origin has a certain dance, you know? Your partner's family of origin, they, they have a certain dance, you know? But when you get married, you learn your own dance. And so you have to unlearn some certain tendencies and steps from your families of origin in order to learn and establish your new dance, right? It's the same kind of thing when we enter the family, this new family of Jesus. In order for us to relate well one with another, there are certain unlearnings that we need to get rid of, ways by which we've been formed, 
by our upbringing, by the culture around us, by our personality tendencies and whatnot. We, ways, ways that we need to unlearn that are actually unhelpful, that have been more shaped by our sin nature and flesh than the life of Christ within us. And then there's new ways within the new family of Jesus that we need to live into and practice together. I mean, Jesus' disciples, they're, they're, they're from all kinds of different backgrounds, right? Some of them were hardworking fishermen, others had worked for Rome, collecting taxes off of those hardworking fishermen, right? I mean, it was, it was this weird uh, kind of dynamic, and yet this whole new social structure that Jesus is weaving together and putting together. See, family was Jesus' vision for Christian communal life and practice at its best, all the way through. Church wasn't to be about a building or a service or, or programs or, or a brand or, or a governance structure or any of these things. It was to be about a group of people who have entered into a new connection of relationship and belonging A group of people gathered together in worship, eating together, sharing together, working together, sacrificing together. This is what life looks like in the new family of Jesus. And Tom Wright in Simply Christian, he puts it like this. He says, the early Christians did their best to live as an extended family, caring for each other in the way in which, in that world, extended families did. They called each other brother and sister and really meant it. They lived and prayed and thought like that, children of the same father, following the same older brother, sharing goods and resources where need arose. And when they talked about love, that's the main thing they meant, living as a single family, a mutually supporting community. The church must never forget that calling. And those who began practicing the way of Jesus back in that day and era, they joined together as an alternative family, the new family of God. And the story of the church throughout Acts and then the following letters that make up the rest of the New Testament to all the churches that go around are really just the story of this new family in formation. The expansion of this new family going out, right? They were sharing in the journey of this new family life together to navigate their world, in a, but, but with a new social structure of interpersonal relationships that redefined whose they were and who they were in light of that, their own identity as all of that. So as we start to think about community, let us think of it first as the creation of an alternative family. This is the highest calling. This is, this is the vision of Jesus, right? It's to, and it's what we're to aim for today. Um, I've recently been reading a book uh, called when, when the Church Was a Family by uh, Dr. Joseph Hellerman. It's a terrific book. And he, and he says this, he says, The early Christians took their culture's strong group approach to family life, appropriated it as the preeminent social model for their local Christian communities, and lived with one another like Mediterranean brothers and sisters. This will make a little bit more sense as we go, so stay with me. And the early Christians turned the world upside down. When the church was a family, the church was on fire. May God help us recapture Jesus' vision for authentic Christian community today. And then he goes on throughout his book, and Hellerman, he gives, he gives four New Testament church values that he says we, we need to return to. Four New Testament church values. The first is, we share our hearts with one another. 
That's the first value that he says. We see that throughout the New Testament church. And, and, and basically, psychologists today, they call this affective solidarity or emotional attachment, emotional attachment, where, where the Holy Spirit does a work of weaving our hearts and our lives together as we spend time together, as we share in life's wins and losses, where we celebrate and lament together, as, as we kind of talk about around here. That the Apostle Paul shared his emotional bond regularly with his churches, exclaiming to them how much he missed them, how much he loved them, how much he longed to be with them, and, and desired for them to stand firm. Does that sound familiar? That's like half of his letters throughout the New Testament. You know, he kind of begins that way, he often ends that way. They're like Paul over and over and over again. We share our hearts with one another. The second thing is we share our stuff with one another. Literally, the physical things we have become shared and become communal. And this can be in, in terms of like financial help for someone who needs it, or the hospitality of an open home, or the generosity of a meal that's shared and even right through to loaning of possessions in order to get certain jobs done or for, for leisure to be enjoyed, the early church shared their possessions to such an extent that no one among them was in need, is the way it t- talks about in Acts chapter 2. So we share our hearts with one another, we share our stuff with one another, and then here we go, you ready for this one? The third is, we stay, embrace the pain and grow up with one another. This is a New Testament practice, New Testament church value. See, it's important we don't get sucked into idealizing. We often, like when we, when we talk about community, when we talk about this kind of a thing, like we go, oh, that sounds phenomenal, and it gets put up on this pedestal, right? It, gets, we, it paints this idealized picture, but the truth is, even if you read the Scriptures closely enough, if you read them carefully, you'll see, even in the New Testament, community was not this ideal, utopian scenario. It wasn't, and it's not today. So we've got to be careful of not getting sucked into idealizing here because family stuff is tough stuff, isn't it? I thought I'd get an amen there. But. <laughs> family stuff is tough stuff, isn't it? I mean, we, we'll all experience as many failures, as victories along the way, and as any therapist will tell you, anyone who leaves a family due to conflict often takes their dysfunctional relationship, uh, relational strategies and behaviors over to another place. And, surprise, surprise... They encounter the same patterns and the same behaviors and the same things all over again. The very issues they thought they were leaving behind, in fact, they've just dragged with them. Wherever you go, there you are, right? Instead, the New Testament church value is, no, we stay and we will grow through it. That's the journey to maturity. This is the New Testament value of what it means to be in community together. And the fourth New Testament value that that Hellman talks about is that family is about more than just me, my wife and the kids, right? It's more than just you, your spouse and your kids. In the ancient Mediterranean context, and we see this in Jesus' words, right? In Mark chapter 3, this is explicitly what he says, right? That, That in ancient Mediterranean context of these first Uh, Christian communities, the most important dynamic was not the parent-to-child dynamic like it often plays out to for us today, but actually the most important dynamic was sibling-to-sibling. Those were the strongest relationships. The common bond in Christ's family is that of brothers and sisters. We actually are 
our brothers and our sisters keeper is the way it's talked about in other scriptures. And so in Christian community, we're invited to view our family lives wider than just our natural or biological family and enjoy the relational benefits of having more siblings in our lives. All the good and all the bad that that brings. There's no promises here. Remember, let's not idealize things. We can't say this is all just going to be perfect and singing kumbaya around the campfire. No, we all know that is not how Christian community often works out. And so, to Dr. Hellman, we see this, this new family of Jesus it, it, but in which we share, it, is defined by sharing our hearts with one another, sharing our stuff with one another, by staying connected and growing and in extending siblings and welcoming more in. Now, this all sounds pretty amazing, right? But there's a massive problem, and you're probably sitting there going, yeah, 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 come on, come on, come on. Because the truth is, we don't live in this first century, highly communal culture, do we? We live in a highly individualized Western culture. And the king in our culture is that of freedom. The non-negotiable valuable in our culture is our right to choose things that are best for us. And by us, we mean me, don't we? Often taking the path of what is most pleasurable or convenient or comfortable and simply we are driven by that which makes us feel good. You know, and when, when we look back at the difference between uh, ancient cultures and many cultures actually around the world today, we see different social dynamics. And, and anthropologists speak of these different dynamics and, and the connectedness in the world in two categories. They talk about strong group and weak group. A society that's a strong group view will make decisions first based on what is best for the whole, the wider group, the entire community. Whereas a weak group view is a society that makes decisions first based on what's best for the individual. See, if you grew up in an Asian or African or Pacifica or Maori Fano, you will probably know what life in the strong group view looks like, far more than those of us who have grown up in Western families which are often the weak group view and instead highly individualistic. See, we've been socialized and discipled and and, and formed in this hyper-individualism around us to such an extent that we can't imagine church as a family. Jesus' vision is like so foreign to our mindsets and our hearts and how we live and operate that it sounds like it's from another planet, doesn't it? That's why it sounds so you know, counter-cultural. For many of us, it's not seen by default. For many of us, church as a family, church, our engagement in church is not seen by default as a community, but actually more like a consumable. For example, when we choose a church, think for a moment about the markers we often use and the conversations you often hear people talk about. Man, I really, I really enjoy the worship there, the worship style. It helps me just really connect with God. Or, I like the teaching, it, it, it feeds me and, and it encourages me. I like that there are people my age. I like that there are fellow vegans. I like that there are, you know, whatever it might be. I like, I like, I like. And, and none of this is wrong in and of itself, right? But just look at those first two recurring words over and over again. Like, I like, I like. Over and over and over again. And here's the kicker, as much as we might choose by what gives us pleasure... 
we just as quickly and equally discard when that pleasure is gone, don't we? So the minute something starts, you know, stepping on our toes, the minute the worship is not quite up to our pleasing, or the minute the teaching gets a little too in my face, or the minute, you know, whatever it might be, those things that I originally liked that no longer meet my consumable mindset and what I like and what I want, because that's the means to an end, get it? That's the thing that brought me here. So when that no longer makes makes the cut, then I just as quickly discard and leave. You see it? Community is very different. I mean, uh, I was recently talking with uh, someone as we were talking about all this and getting ready for it, and, and uh, someone from our church, Fano, who posed a really challenging question, and it's, and it's really been rocking me, if I'm honest. They said, hey, hey, if a person from the first century church showed up to one of our worship gatherings, what of this would they recognize and find familiar? I was like, oh, that's a... Man, and, and when she asked me that, I was, I was like, oh, I felt quite uncomfortable and squirming a little bit internally on the inside, right? Like, like it, trying to, can you imagine trying to explain to a believer from the first century what's going on here, how we gather, how we do things, our means to what end, you know, that, that actually, that we as a church, so much of what we do and how we live has been shaped by this highly individualistic and personal preference motive and value that I honestly don't think they would understand very much, right? It would be like an alien experience for them, just like we talk about Jesus' vision for community being somewhat of an alien experience for us. Because for so much of them, the church was about putting the group first, putting their brothers and sisters before them and supporting and serving and giving and sharing. You know, imagine trying to share with a, a first century believer what church shopping is, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, like, even, it, I, mean, I mean, we have some significant rewiring and reorienting to do, don't we? And so let's consider how we might live into this vision as an alternative community, the new family of Jesus in 2022, this Advent, as we run on into Christmas and New Year's. See, in order to live into Jesus' vision of community, because it is so unfamiliar to us, friends, we got to practice. we got to practice community. Practice it as a discipline. Practice it as in prioritizing it, as disciplining ourselves in order to choose it, to intentionally deciding to grow through it and into the vision it invites us to live into. The church has called this practice fellowship, right? Over the years, you've maybe heard that term. Like, this is fellowship. It's a purposeful choosing to live in kinship, family relationships with others. It's the the purposeful submitting of ourselves and our lives in relationship to others that this space and this place may grow in us only what relationship with others can grow and reveal. We've got to practice this. This is so foreign for us. We need to learn. We need to unlearn some bad habits and we need to relearn some new habits about what it looks like to do life in the family of Jesus. And practicing it means sticking with it, even when it gets tough. 
right? I mean, many different people over the years have talked about the social dynamics of community formation and how that all works and plays out. You might have heard about the storming, you know, the, the, the forming, storming, norming, you know, performing kind of way in which groups operate, you know. Uh, according to M. Scott Peck, any group of strangers coming together to create a community goes through four distinct and predictable phases. The first, he says, is it starts at pseudo-community. Pseudo-community. This is the stage of the honeymoon where we're just getting to know everyone and everything's great and it's awesome and it's amazing. Everyone's really pleasant with one another and they, 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 they kind of skip by on the surface because you want to avoid anything that would cause disagreement or conflict that would stir up or, or hurt other people's feelings. And so they, everyone's wanting to be loving and so they'll withhold truth about themselves or, or their feelings in order to avoid conflict, Right? Individual differences are minimized, they're unacknowledged, or they're ignored. The group may appear to be functioning smoothly, but individuality and intimacy and honesty are crushed. Then, the pseudo-community moves into chaos. This is that stage of conflict and fear where actually the facade breaks down and once individual differences begin to surface, the group almost immediately moves into chaos, right? Where, where individual differences come out in the open and the group attempts to kind of obliterate them and like, no, you need to think like this and you need to be like this. It's a stage of uncreative and unconstructive fighting and struggle oftentimes. Anyone experience this? It's no fun, is it? It's unpleasant. Lots of us have gotten to this stage and bailed, right? This is where we'll opt out and we'll just, we'll just cycle back to pseudo-community because that feels much nicer, right? That's what we do. Not realizing there's actually more to come if we will stick through it. Because after chaos comes emptiness. And this is the stage of acceptance, really. The way through chaos to true community is through emptiness, and this is the hardest and crucial stage of community development. It means members emptying themselves of barriers to communication. The most common barriers are expectations and preconceptions and prejudices and ideology and theology and solutions and the need to heal and fix or convert and solve and, you know, the need to control. It's emptying ourselves of all of that. The stage of emptiness is ushered in as members begin to share their own brokenness, their defeats and failures, their fears and struggles, rather than acting as if they have it all together. This is the hardest phase, isn't it? Anyone squirming a little bit in your seat right now? Like, come on, Clint, can we move on? We want some good news. Because that's what actually comes. If, if we stick through it, we get to true community. This, friends, is the stage of real belonging. True community emerges as a group chooses to embrace not only the light, but also the darkness that so much of life encapsulates. See, true community is both joyful and realistic. And the transformation of the group from a collection of individuals into a true community requires little deaths in many of the individuals. But it's also a time of group death, of group dying. Through this emptiness, this sacrifice comes true community, where members begin to speak of their deepest and most vulnerable parts, and others stay and listen not trying to fix 
or solve, not offering advice. There may be tears of sorrow, but there'll also be tears of deep joy. It's an extraordinary amount of healing begins to occur in this place. See, to become family is to move through the stages to true community. This is Jesus' vision of the new family of God. And to that first century believer, this is what being in church was all about, right? It wasn't staying at some pseudo-community level or giving up at chaos. It was the journey through to the genuine article. This is why we often see the church of Jesus Christ thrives under persecution and oppression around the world. It wasn't individualistic, it was communal. It wasn't something just attended, it was a state of belonging. Friends, to practice community, we must commit to this movement and see it as the work of God amongst us as He grows us into a truly alternative family. We've got to commit to it and we've got to stay, stay in, even though it's difficult. We've got to unlearn some unhealthy ways of relating one to another and learn some new ways, healthier patterns. And so to finish, I want to just close with um, actually some of the first words in Dr. Hellerman's book that I referred to earlier, When, when Church Was a Family. Uh, he begins with this confronting challenge straight out of the gate, and one I think we need to keep in mind uh, amongst all that's possible as we're considering the work of community that we all desire. He, here's, here's what he says in the opening sentence, and I, and I wonder if these words might stir something in us in order to practice and act on in the coming weeks. He says, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. That's not in there, I just added that bit. (laughs) Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay, grow. People who leave, do not grow. If I may, allow me to rewrite that and give it to you in one sentence. I think in becoming like Jesus, friends, there is no, you can't go lone wolf. It's not an option. It's not possible. You won't mature into the person God has created and called you to be if you go it alone. So make no mistake and and don't kid yourself. You will grow in the way of Jesus mainly with a commitment to practicing life with others. Alone or drifting in pseudo-relationship from place to place, you won't grow to maturity. As we've said it for years around here, our worship gatherings are great. And sitting here in rows at the well, you know, when we're speaking about discipleship, that's great. But that is not the place where you will grow most fully into maturity. The deeper things of discipleship, they don't happen in rows here on a Sunday morning. They happen in circles around living rooms and around tables in homes throughout the week. That's where the deeper things of life actually are shared, where life in community is experienced and where we actually grow. So friends, as we come to Advent together, 
as we talk about a means to an end. And I've just spent all this time painting Jesus' vision for community. What does it actually take for us to live into that and practice that this Advent? Here is your homework, church. If you actually want to apply this, this is your spiritual practice for the week, is to go home and with those you do community with most closely. For those of you who are married and have kids, that would include them. For those of you who live in a flat and, and your flatties are here with you, this might inc- include a conversation there. For the, you know, whoever those people are, here's the, here's the thing. Pull out your calendar. Pull out your diary. I know this is going to sound real practical, but it's deeply spiritual. I'm, I'm not joking here. And look at everything that you've already committed to between now and Christmas Day. And ask yourself, are these things forming me in the way of Jesus? By committing to all of these things, am I like Jimmy, frantically running down to the beach? Or could I actually say no to some things? Are some of these actually non-essential for me to be at? where you would maybe start to clear out your calendar and instead of ramping up the pace of life between now and Christmas, you do the exact opposite, where you become highly selective and intentional about the places that you connect in so that when you're there, you're not just showing up in body, because that's how we get, right? We become disembodied when we run at such a frantic and fast pace. We leave our hearts and our spirits and our souls behind. We show up embodied, embodied but not fully embodied. And so you can show up in those places with people and be fully present with the fullness of who you are. Where you, imagine this, instead of the speed of life increasing from now till Christmas, what if you actually went the other way, began to taper off now and slowed down a little bit this week and a little bit more next week and even more the week after that and so that by, by the time you get to Christmas Day, you're cruising and everyone else around you is going, man, what's up with you? I guarantee there'll be less family fights over Christmas dinner. I guarantee you'll be able to show up and be present with those that you're around in ways that are much more patient and kind and generous and sacrificial because you're okay. You see it, right? So friends, the community practice for this week, and we're going to give a community practice each week as we journey through Lent. What does it look like for us to Advent together? Maybe this is the discussion you have with your life group, those of you who are in life group this week. Where together, you collectively draw out your calendars and you have conversation around the living room, around the table this week at Life Group and go, okay, okay, friends, who's, who's into this? Who's, who's going to take this seriously? And what does it mean then for us to prioritize our gatherings when we are together? If this is your community where you're doing the deeper work of discipleship, then maybe, actually, Dean, do you mind uh, going back to the four New Testament values where you start laying those four New Testament values across uh, your gatherings? This is kind of doing it on the fly. Yeah, where, where you go, we share our hearts, we share our stuff, right? Where we, we, we stay, we don't, we don't bail, we don't hop out, and, and, and we actually look to extend the siblings. See, this, these four. Maybe, maybe snap a photo of that or jot that in your notes and say, these are the kinds of conversations we're going to have as a life group 
and say, how do we live into these values? How do we outwork and practice these values this Advent that we might do Advent together? So over the next few weeks, we're going to spend time and Advent starts next Sunday at our all-in worship gathering. It's going to be great, amazing community moment for us to be all together in one place at one time. And as we gather together, we'll start next week with the first theme of Advent. We'll talk about what it means to be a community of hope, a people of hope, a community of hope who, who live that out collectively together as the new family of Jesus. And then after that, it'll be a community of peace and a community of joy and a community of love. It's going to be a great journey to Christmas. But f- over these next few weeks, as we break it down, I invite you, please come back. And next week, we'll, we'll, we'll look specifically at knowing and naming the stages of community and how we can build further connection into God, this new family that Jesus is inviting us into. No matter what life stage and season you are in, it's possible. It can be done. So the team's going to come, and as they do, I'd love to just pray for us as we conclude our time in worship together. Is that all right? Actually, why don't we stand together? Let's stand together, and we'll pray, and, uh, and then just close with a time of worship. I think we're actually going to start Christmas early with a Christmas song. All right, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for... Uh, this time that we have spent together. God, I thank you for uh, the ways in which your people have been so, over the years, have been so mindful and conscious of different seasons. And this season of Advent, this season of preparation and of anticipating, where we look back and we celebrate not only Jesus, your first coming, but we anticipate your return, Christ Jesus, when all will be made new. And Lord, we want to start living into that now. So would you help us, in light of your words here in Mark chapter 3, to view each other here in this room and across this room as brother and sister? It's not defined by age or stage. Would you help us, empower us, enable us, give us the grace to live into this new family of Jesus? Lord, when when old habits and old patterns and behaviors start to crop up that are just part of our, of, of, of our deformation away from your image and likeness, Lord, would you surround us with your people who are gracious and kind and patient and long-suffering but willing to speak truth in love? God, that we might attend to those things in this season. God, for those where, where uh, you would help us be that for others as well, would you give us the grace, even though we may not be feeling it in, the, in that specific moment, Lord, would you give us, empower us by your grace to be patient and kind and loving and long-suffering long and to speak truth in love. Give us the motivation of love like a brother and a sister would. And Lord, I pray for each one of us in this season that you would intentionally call us to slow down our lives, draw us into loving union with you first and foremost, but also with others. May this be a season like we've not experienced before. May we do Advent differently, but may we do it together in a way that is so much more meaningful. 
May we experience your love and your presence through the precious gift of your people around us this Advent. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.